Hello and welcome to what is the last episode of this series of COVID Roulette. Who knows, it may have an incarnation in the future. But today we are wrapping it up and we're doing it with some leftovers. It's almost like bubble and squeak night at the podcast. We spoke to some terrific medical professionals on this podcast and they gave us some answers across a wide range of topics, but we couldn't use all of them in the episodes that have popped up so far. So what we're going to do in this last catch-all episode is play a little bit of Dr. Pat Charles. He is the head of infectious diseases at the Austin Hospital. And he had some fascinating things to say about the nature of viruses and what immune systems do and how vaccinations work and the lives that have been saved by lockdowns and vaccinations. And we also spoke to Dr. Andrew Casamento of the Austin. He works in ICU. And Dr. Cass had some telling things to say about the strain the health system has been under. So to finish up, here are two fantastic health professionals. Hello, Dr. Pat. Hello, Tony. We've called our podcast COVID Roulette because it seemed to me from the start that this was a virus where you could just be unlucky or lucky. The, the reaction of the body could go in various directions. Is it still that sort of virus or is it much more predictable now? It is very much. So certainly things have improved a lot with the higher level of immunity, both through vaccination, prior infection or a combination of the two. So it is certainly better for us in Australia now than a year and a half ago. But uh, it is still very much a bit of a roulette in that some people just happen to be lucky and get a very mild case. Other people, and there's uh, various reasons why, are just unlucky and get a much more severe case. Mostly not life-threatening these days, but still pretty awful. And we know of some reasons why some people are more likely to get a horrible case. So certainly the obvious ones that we have all heard about, so things like being older and having other health problems. But there are other things that are kind of hidden that might mean that someone who doesn't meet any of those uh, features, someone who's young and otherwise healthy, still gets a horrible time of it when they get sick. Uh, tell us what those are. What, what, is, what are the little risk factors? Is, is it sort of a blood disease or is it kidney function or what can be the problem? It, it could be just a case of your genetic makeup. Uh, meaning that you're just more likely to get a, a nastier dose of the infection. There might be perhaps how much of the virus you first inhale or uh, get into your body when you come into contact with it. Um, and there are certain things where uh, we know that certain people carry certain antibodies in their blood before they get this, which make it more likely that you get a, a nastier uh, type of infection when you catch it. Uh, so they're not generally things that we can kind of easily test for in the beforehand period, but it's just, it, it's just a thing of some people tend to you know, do worse than others and 
it, it's often not that easy to predict. And I know certainly some of my friends who are extremely fit and, and very healthy marathon runners and the like who've had a terrible time when they got sick. And then other people where I was really worried because they were overweight or older, uh, immune suppressed and had other health issues. And I thought, oh gosh, I really hope they don't get it. And they sailed through it. So it's not as just predictable as you know, kind of the obvious things we tend to blame. They're not always the problems. Is there now a, a much more fixed timeline of how things will happen? It seemed that in the early days, we were all being quarantined for 40, 14 days because it may arrive on day 13. Whereas with Omicron, people tend to say, look, if you haven't got it by day four, you're probably not going to get it from an exposure. Is that an accurate layman's assessment? It's reasonably accurate, not fully. So the incubation period is generally shorter now. Most people tend to become symptomatic two to three days after getting exposed, uh, but there's still a range. So some people might get it a little bit before that, and then some people occasionally getting it out to seven days. But there don't seem to be as many ones going out to close to 14 days like there were early on in the pandemic. And what about a serious reaction after you think you're right? So at the moment, we're being let out after seven days. In the old days, we thought we had to have 14 days to not be contagious, but nowadays it seems to have been dragged back at least at a governmental level to say seven days i've heard of people saying they get the, the chest tightness and that sort of thing maybe a week after they got out is that is that possible it is and the period of infectiousness is a little bit variable so it's not just a standard seven days and you're fine some people are not contagious by you no know, day four or five and other people are certainly still contagious out to 10 to 14 days and so we've kind of taken seven as a sort of on average most people are okay but there is a bit of a range. And if you still do have symptoms, particularly the uh, lung and uh, related symptoms like coughing or shortness of breath, uh, then we would say you, know, you probably still need to be a bit concerned that potentially you could still be contagious. If you're still just kind of a bit run down, that's probably okay. And are people calling ambulances when they're out? Like they think they're okay and then suddenly they're in an ambulance? There are still occasional ones where people do you know, have that first week of illness and then start to deteriorate after that time which was the traditional time early on in the pandemic when pre-vaccination, when people tended to get very sick, that they would kind of have the, uh, the virally type flu-like symptoms for the first week and then suddenly start to have the experience of the uh, severe shortness of breath and the becoming extremely unwell when it became more life-threatening. But that still does happen a little bit. And what about vaccination? The fourth jab, the legendary fourth jab that people like me are eyeing off. I'm, I'm in my late 40s. Um, and it's now quite a long time since I've had my third jab. Should I be getting nervous that if I get COVID, and for me it'll be for the first time, am I at a higher risk because I'm now getting up to sort of six months since my booster? The benefit of the fourth dose doesn't seem to be enormous. If anything, the benefit is very small. And mostly your protection against getting severe disease is probably already there with your triple vaccination. And so your chance of catching COVID probably does go up over time your chance of getting severe COVID probably does not go up by much at all. And so if you get a fourth dose, you maybe get a little temporary boost in your levels of antibodies and the levels of immunity so that maybe you're a bit less likely to catch any COVID infection for uh, maybe a period of a month or two, but it's not going to give you long-term protection uh, against catching it. And it probably won't change your risk of severe disease all that much because that's already pretty good. We know that with three doses... Very few people who've had three doses have ended up in intensive care. And so we had, obviously, at the start, we had a lot of people getting into intensive care before we had vaccines. And still we get some with either no vaccine or one or two, but very few get into intensive care now because they're so sick 
when they've had three doses. So it does appear to be really good protection. And I mean, I've actually asked you to help me on Facebook when I come across friends who sort of say, hey, but we're still getting it. And all these people are still inf- getting infected with the disease. And, and so, you know, we've gone to all this trouble with vaccines. And yet, you know, there's more infections today than ever in Australia. And, and even there's a lot of people dying, more people than have ever died really uh, in Australia are dying in this present wave. What's the medical reaction to those sorts of people? The vaccines certainly have changed things a lot. And yes, obviously people are still catching it, but it's such a different situation in the hospital now compared to a year or so, or a year or more ago. Back then when we had you know, tens to hundreds of cases in our state, uh, we had huge numbers of people getting into hospital and then staying in hospital for a long time and a large proportion of them ended up in intensive care and often for weeks and weeks. Now, with tens of thousands of cases at least every day, we've got a relatively small number of patients in hospital and a lot of those people are coming in for other reasons, like if they had a traumatic episode and need to come into hospital for that and then are found to have COVID as well. And the COVID is not the main reason they're in hospital and we still certainly have to isolate them, but they're not sick from the COVID. So we have a, you know, a reasonable number of people in hospital with COVID because there's so many cases around, but there's not that many people getting that severe COVID illness anymore. So it really has changed a lot. And the actual uh, truth of the matter is when people say, well, this is a bad vaccine because it doesn't stop infection. Essentially, none of our vaccines do stop infection. They just stop you getting an uh, illness severe enough to get tested for it. Yeah. So there's almost no vaccines that give genuine sterilizing immunity, as in complete protection against the infection. It's just that we don't test for things like that. And so if you get a very mild case of polio, we don't test you. But it's happening. And But the vaccines stop the severe illness, and so we just don't see it. But we're not measuring it like we are with all these COVID tests, finding all these relatively mild cases. And what about the people that have been angry about lockdowns and and sort of playing up the hoax element, I guess, of this virus, have often focused on this idea of people dying with COVID and not of COVID. You talk about relatively few people dying compared to the large number of infections nowadays. How would you characterise the way they are dying? Are they dying of COVID, with COVID? Do you find the question just annoying? What's what's your reaction to it? Yeah, I suspect that very few of these people have actually witnessed any COVID deaths. And certainly early on when uh, we had so much more severe cases, they were, they were not nice deaths. Uh, people died really struggling with their so short of breath and very uncomfortable. So it was very clearly people early on were just dying because of COVID. These days, that still happens a little bit, but we also do have a lot of people who are getting towards the end of their life who are getting COVID, and that is sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back, and then it does bring about an earlier death, but generally, it's not what it was before, so it really has changed a lot. So yes, there's still people kind of, yes, dying with slash of COVID, but they are definitely dying early, and they wouldn't have died otherwise, so COVID is killing them, but it's definitely a a very different situation in the hospital wards now compared to a year or so ago. And in terms of the lockdowns last year and the vaccination program and everything, what's your estimation for how Australia could have gone and how we have gone in terms of just sheer fatalities? How does the maths play out? Well, at the moment, with uh, somewhere between seven and 8,000 deaths total in Australia, that's about 0.3% of the population. 
and most other countries that didn't do any lockdowns or did lockdowns way too late, for example, like the UK or the US and so forth, but countries that have similar population demographics to us, most of them have had at least 0.3% rather than our 0.03% people dying. So you'd multiply our 7,000 by 10 and say that we probably, if we'd followed the model of the UK or US, we would have at least 70,000 people died. So it's very likely we've saved 60,000 plus lives before we've done. And uh, there's also a fair bit of evidence that a lot of those case counts, the deaths in those countries are quite undercounted. So it, it could even be potentially more than that. And in terms of what you'll remember, we're doing this series as an oral history uh, to just record some ordinary people's stories of the pandemic. Can you tell us about a day you had? I know you were advising governments and leading a, a team of... Tell us a day you remember, just, uh, wow, this happened. It, it's been a uh, certainly an incredible time to be working in infectious diseases and um, it's really been a process of learning so much and at the start we obviously didn't know anything about this at all and we tried to make it up with what we knew about other coronaviruses and have gradually learnt more and more and now we know a huge amount but uh, it's going through periods of nervousness anticipation before it really started thinking oh gosh we're seeing what's happening overseas this doesn't look good and then when it started here and it was certainly quite scary and we uh, kind of had to learn on the job what we should and shouldn't do for patients with COVID and how we protect their health as much as possible to try and keep them alive and also protect the, the healthcare staff and the other family members around them from catching it. And uh, obviously that's changed a lot and we've gradually become reasonably good at this. We've still got things we could improve, but it, it's been an amazing journey going from this kind of really quite terrifying period early on to really sort of feeling we can cope with this. It's, it's still very busy in the hospitals, but we're, we're coping okay. Uh, but yes, still under a lot of stress. And, and do you remember like the first death, for example, was that sort of burned in your brain that, you know, God, it's here and we're going to have to, we're going to have a lot of this? Yeah, it, it, particularly when you see someone who's like you, you know, I guess, who, you know, similar age and who's got kids of a similar age and it really hits home when you see you think oh gosh that could be me it, it becomes sort of very personal then when you see somebody who's really struggling like that it, it's a it it does really bring it home and it's a, it, it was pretty scary for a while and what about your family pat you obviously have spent so much time around the virus um have you managed to dodge it what, what's happened with the charles's oh, yeah, I've, I'm still a co-virgin. I still have not caught it at this stage. And uh, if you look at the staff working in the, the COVID team at our hospital, they've actually got a really low rate of having had infections at all. So very few have caught it. And in the last six months, almost none have caught it at work. Um, and a couple have caught it at home from particularly, say, kids bringing it home from school. But the, the, the team looking after the COVID patients had a really low rate of having any COVID infections. And uh, my family's been relatively lucky with one child only having a very mild dose. Thank you, Pat Charles. And now here's Dr. Casamento. In terms of treatment, we didn't hear anything really in terms of what was happening. It was just, um, you know, what is this steroid therapy? I still don't hear about it. Is that, is that what happens? You get given a... So so one of the, probably one of the um, most significant treatments we have because it's a relatively cheap and widely available therapy 
is a drug called dexamethasone, which is a steroid. So one of the problems with this virus is that it causes an inflammatory inflammation response all over the body and in the lungs. And it's the lungs issue is is why people were dying because we they couldn't get enough oxygen in because the lungs are becoming scarred with the virus. And it's a normal response of the body. If there's, a, if there's a, a, something that the body doesn't recognise, such as a virus, it tries to remove it by causing inflammation. And so that, that works. Usually, you know, we have thousands of years of evolution, which that, that's, how, that's how patients stay alive, by getting rid of things that the body doesn't recognise by causing inflammation. But with this virus, it, it appropriately causes inflammation. And for most patients, that is the right thing. But for some people, it causes scarring and inflammation of the lungs, and then they are unable to breathe. Mm-hmm. Properly unable to get enough oxygen. So steroid therapy dampens or, re- or helps remove that inflammatory process. And so it was one of the things that we were using very early on and still use today. And what about the toll on the system? Has there been a big attrition of staff? I'm hearing from some doctors that the medical system is facing a bit of a crisis did people quit after this was it just hard on everyone people are quitting now nurses are quitting now doctors are quitting now i I must admit in my 20 25 years of working i i haven't i've never really known of so many doctors mid working term just saying i'm taking the rest of the year off I've, I've (laughs) i've never i've never come across that and look is there's a lot of talk is the system under stress at the moment the system's under stress at the moment yes um, there's a lot of ward patients that have COVID, yes. There's a lot of presentations to the emergency department, yes. But this is not a new phenomenon. The government would like to say it's all due to COVID, and I, I don't agree with that. I, I've uh, felt, particularly our emergency department colleagues, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm an emergency medicine specialist as well, but I don't work so much in emergency medicine anymore. I'm mainly in intensive care. But the emergency departments have always been under strain, and and. To believe that COVID has, you know, suddenly put a normal system into a, a, an unmanageable system is is not the case. It's always been under strain. Uh, one of my favourite quotes was by a guy named Simon Judkins, who used to be the president of the Australasian Co- Co- um, College of Emergency Medicine, and he said, "It's interesting. We've been told to activate our surge capacity." He said, "I don't know how we can activate our surge capacity when we're already running at 105 percent." You know, so, <laughs> so yeah. So I think um, I think everyone is pretty stressed and. Burnout's been thrown around a lot. I think people, I think people have had a tough two years, and now I think people are getting to the point where some people are just saying, "I just can't do this anymore." And look, the issue at the moment for for intensive care anyway is not not so much the patients, but it's the um, staff members that are having to be furloughed because of COVID. And we're now to the point where if you have contact, you don't need to. And I think that was a necessary change because or else we'd have, we'd have no one turning up <laughs> to work. Yeah, it is. I think people are feeling it now and have, have for a while. Well, well done on your two years and well done on your 26, Gas. But, um, <laughs> but well done especially on helping us all during these tough times and, and thank you. It's, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's a pleasure, Tony. As I said, it's... Um, I... Uh, it's, uh, it's been interesting two years. I'm glad I've been a part of it. But, um, yeah, there are things I could have done without, I must admit. But, um, yeah, thanks a lot. Well, that's it. The show's a wrap. End of COVID roulette. The ball has stopped dancing on the wheel. My name's Tony Wilson. I've loved presenting this series of COVID stories. And I couldn't have done it without my producer comrade, Leanne Cogland. She and I came up with the idea of this show. 
And Leanne's done a power of work on the edits and the organization and the wrangling. So thank you, Leanne. The podcast was made possible via a grant from the Victorian government through its community grants program. Big thank you to David Bridey, who was a guest on the podcast on the Fleur episode, but he also wrote the theme music to COVID Roulette. And thank you also, Lee Arkapur, for the graphic design and logo work. To Dr. Charles and Dr. Casamento, thanks for being in this last episode. And thank you to all our guests across all the episodes. It's really something to share health stories and stories of a pandemic touching your life. And, and some of these stories have been quite private. And we really appreciate you participating in the way that you have. So this is me signing off. I haven't had COVID yet, but I have got a sore throat today. Negative rats so far, but who knows? You might get a bonus episode pretty soon entitled Tony 